Hey everyone, if you have a, a Bible, uh, whether it be a paper or if you'll click to it, uh, we are in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, for those of you who are guests with us, um, we just take books of the Bible and we work through them so that we can't avoid hard subjects and we allow God's Word to tell us um, what we need to cover. And so we seek to be faithful to understand His Word. We do believe the Bible is God's Word completely, infallible and inerrant, and that it is the guide for our lives. And so we invite you to turn there with us. Um, we are reading from a version called the English Standard Version, and we will be in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, and we'll be in chapter 6 and 7 today. Uh, as you're turning there... We uh, want to uh, let you know that uh, we're going to continue with this service time at 10.30. That way, whether we're doing outdoor or indoor, um, it can get a little warmer. Some of you might be like, I'm warm enough, thank you, because um, that sun is right at you. But uh, we are going to do that at 10.30, okay? We'll continue to give you announcements, uh, and after we talk this week as to how things uh, went out here today, we'll let you know what our plans are moving forward. But 10.30 next week, we'll worship again, and uh, so we are thankful to God to be able to be together. Also, one day, we want you to put on the calendar, uh, part of our church family. If you're in the church family here at Church in Christ Church, we have a family meeting. Amen. I hear that. We have a family meeting. I didn't know people would be that excited over a family meeting, but amen. Family meeting, April the 11th. April the 11th, and it'll be immediately after our service. Those who want to stay will eat together, and then we'll have that family meeting on April the 11th. That's the Sunday after Easter Sunday, which is April the 4th. So please mark that down. And now let's just dive into the book of Nehemiah together. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 to 3 of chapter 6, and then I'll pray, and we'll, we'll dive right in uh, to this time in God's Word. The Word of God says this. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakefarim in the plain of Ono, where they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Let's pray. Father, take your word. Strengthen us with it. May it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May we hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. Would you fill us by your Holy Spirit that we might be an army of love, unified for the glory of your name. So please, work in our lives today, we pray. Amen. This sermon today is about unfinished business. Unfinished business. I was reading and found that there is a building in North Korea. I chose not to try to pronounce this hotel because I would have butchered it, but there is a hotel in North Korea that was started back in the 80s, and it stands 105 stories tall, and yet it has the infamy of being the largest unoccupied building in the world. 
105 stories tall. For many, many years it didn't even have windows on it because they ran out of money after economic sanctions were placed upon the North Koreans. The money that they had invested is 2% of their GDP, $700 million just to get it halfway. It was supposed to be a hotel of hotels. It was supposed to be this place that would show off the greatness and grandeur of North Korea, and all it is is an eyesore. They eventually, several years later, they began to try to raise up some money to put windows on it, and that's all they could afford. Now they have been able to put LED lights on the outside to put propaganda on it, but it still sets unoccupied because they can't afford to finish the building. There's a sense of this shame of these unmet expectations, not reaching the goal, the sense of unfinished business. There's a little book in our household. It's by Francis Chan, and it's about a little character called Halfway Herbert. It's a kid's book. Halfway Herbert is notorious for one thing. Halfway Herbert does things. I'll let you finish it. Halfway, that's right. Happily named. Halfway Herbert does things halfway. And as Halfway Herbert does things halfway, he halfway ties his shoes. Kids, do we understand what happens when we halfway tie our shoes? We trip on our shoestrings, right? At least that's what our parents tell us. Sometimes, halfway Herbert would go and ride a skateboard, and he would think that he did not need to put on a helmet. And halfway Herbert, when he crashes, he hits his head because he does things what? Halfway. That's right. Sometimes he was given chores in his home, and when he was given chores in those homes, he would, in his home, he would not do them all the way because he did things halfway. That's right. He cleaned his room up just part of the way and then wondered why all of a sudden things were scattered everywhere because he did things halfway. When it came to obeying his mom and dad, he chose to do those things halfway as well, thinking he knew what was best. And the moral of the story is doing things halfway is a horrible way to live your life. It has devastating effects. And here as we read the book of Nehemiah, there are enemies that are attacking Nehemiah. And their whole goal is that he would do his work halfway. The whole goal is that Nehemiah would stop doing the work of God. They would think if there was some way they could intimidate him or distract him or lie to him or character assassinate him, if there was some way they could just get him off mission, that he would stop the work of God. Do it halfway. And then these enemies would not find the economy of their territories compromised. They would have the power that they wanted to have. They wanted it to be done halfway. Friends, here's the moral of the story. The design of the devil is this. And those who do his bidding is this. It is to stop the work of God in your life. It is to stop you from participating with God in his mission. That's what the devil wants to do. And he will do that through distraction. He will do that through lying to you. He will do that through intimidation. Or he will do that through character assassination. But make no mistake. Whether it's a physical threat or whether it's a spiritual threat, his aim is that your faith would crumble. You would trust in yourself and you would get off of his mission. You would stop doing the work. You would be a halfway follower of Jesus. And so, 
in this story, this real historical event of the story of Nehemiah, what we see is that these enemies, they are physical enemies, but they're also a picture of the spiritual battle that many of us face day in and day out. Enemies that want to stop us from fully obeying God and His Word, from joining fully in the mission of God for the glory of God. And so let's look at it together today. As we look at this, we want to be a part of God's work all the way. We don't want to stop His mission. We want to link arms and be a part of His purposes as long as He gives us breath. So let's catch up where we are in the story of Nehemiah. The story of Nehemiah began with Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer to the king, which although it might sound pretty to me, and he was had quick access to the king. It was a very powerful and authoritative position because he was in the presence of the king regularly, and he gets a note. A note from his fellow kinsmen that his people in Jerusalem, they lie in devastation along with the city, and they sit there in shame. And Nehemiah is broken over this. And after four months of praying and fasting and weeping, he calls out to God to grant him favor with the king. And he asked the king then in his presence, Nehemiah chapter 2, would you give us the resources so that we may go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem? And God showed his hand was upon Nehemiah and upon this mission. And so he got the permission to go. He got the passage to go through enemy territory. He got all of the materials he needed. And Nehemiah lands in the city of Jerusalem. He walks around for three days, kind of scoping out the territory. And then finally he makes his pitch. He gathers all the people around and he says, will you join me in rebuilding this wall? Nehemiah knew this was his mission because he had read his Bible. The Word of God had told him that after the people of God had been exiled, that is, pulled out of their native land because of their disobedience, that God would restore them back to where they needed to be, that He would be their help to restore the people of Israel back to their city, Jerusalem. So Nehemiah, on this mission, invites these people, they say yes, and they go at it to build the wall. This is a wall of protection around the city, and it is meant to be seen as a, an accompanying work to what Ezra had already done many, many years earlier, which was rebuild the temple. And so it's the rebuilding of the temple, it's the rebuilding of the walls that show that they are trying to participate in God's work. And now all the people unified, they link arms together, everyone with their different skills, and they rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up in chapter 6, because what Pastor Hunter did an amazing job last week preaching was that there began to be opposition from without and from within. Anytime we participate in the mission of God, we must expect opposition inside of us and outside of us. And this is where chapter 6 continues. I want you to look that in chapter 6, there are opponents. Look at verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and the, the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, verse 2, they sent me a message saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. This was the point. He was on mission and yet they intended to do harm. Why? Well, you can imagine, they, 
they could you could imagine that as they were seeking to uh, build this wall and invite the people of Israel to be a part of this work what you do not know is that only 10% of the people of Israel lived in Israel the rest 90% according to Nehemiah chapter 11 verse 1 and 2 90% lived in surrounding territories. Well, these opponents are the governors of those surrounding territories. So if they start losing people, they lose what? They lose money. If they start losing people, they lose what? They lose power. And now all of a sudden their livelihood, their domain, their dominion is threatened. And so they are threatened by this work. Let alone the fact if all of these people gathered together, they could at some point raise up and become a mighty enough power to overthrow those territories, at least that's in their mind. So we have opposition going on because people do feel threatened many times. So this is why they are against him. And what do they seek to do? Four things that we're looking at. I've already mentioned them twice, but I'll keep throwing them at you. They seek to distract Nehemiah. They seek to deceive Nehemiah. They seek to intimidate Nehemiah. And they seek to character assassinate Nehemiah. All of these things in hopes that the work of God would stop. Let's look at the first one. Verses 1 to 4. There's a sense of distraction. Now, I want to make sure that you see in verse 3, it's Nehemiah's own words that help us understand that the main point of this whole passage is, is that the opponents want to stop the work of God. Look at what he says in verse 3. I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? This was the main point. That they, the opponents wanted Nehemiah to stop the work. Can you say stop the work? No, we don't want to stop the work. If you stop telling me to do that, you're being an opponent. Stop it. Okay, just kidding. Here we go. Look at verse 4. What it says there is it says, And they sent to me four times in this way. Come, meet me over here so we can have a meeting. Nehemiah knew that their intention was to harm him. But if he went there, he could not lead the people to finish the final touches to the wall. And so, not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but we even see there was a fifth time in verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Now, before we get to the contents of that letter, the point here is... These enemies, one of their major tools is constant distraction. Constant distraction. And we must be careful that we are not a part of this distraction. The distraction is anything that takes us sideways, sideways from loving the people of God and linking arms with the people of God for the mission of God, that is to love our neighbors and to love the nations. And to do that, not for our glory, but for the glory of God. It's when the people of God link arms on their love for the Son of God and the power of the Spirit of God to be on mission of God for the glory of God. If I said God enough, that's the point. God is the point of the mission of His people. And you better believe that the opponents want to distract you from that. Want to distract us as a people from that mission of love. And we must check our own hearts. 
that we are not a part of this distracting work. Now, how did Nehemiah know it was his mission? Nehemiah knew it was his mission because he had read his Bible. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 38 through 40, actually lay a blueprint for what the restoration of Jerusalem would be. And so it's no accident that when you read Jeremiah 31, it talks about a, a special tower. And it talks, it talks about the horse gate. And then what you see is that these are the very places that Nehemiah starts and finishes his work. It's because he's reading his Bible. And now we must ask ourselves, what is the mission of Christ's church? How do we know what that is? Well, we know what it is from reading our Bibles. From reading our Bibles. Now, stay with me. Because many times, if you've grown up in and around the church, sometimes you can see churches that are a part of, they have a nice building, or they might be seeking to build a building and those kind of things. And sometimes you think that that is the mission of the church, is to have a nice building and then to just have safe services. But that's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is not a physical house. The mission of the church is to build a spiritual house. And I don't get this from anywhere other than the scriptures. Isn't it interesting? You go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And David comes to God. And David looks around at his surroundings. And he says, I've got an amazing house. So God... If I'm just little old me, I need to build you a great house like I've got a great house. And you know what God's answer was? He says, I'll, I'll let you do that through your son. Your son can build me a great house. But here's what I want to make really clear, David. This is not about you building me a house. Instead, I'm going to use you and I'm going to build a house for you. And this house is not a house of bricks and mortar. It's a house of flesh. It's a house of people. This is the house of God. It's the people of God. And that's why when you zip forward to the New Testament and the church is actually called the temple, the body of Christ, the people of God, it is because that's what we are. We in flesh are what God is building. He is building His church and that's what we are to be a part of. We're to be a part of building up one another's faith. We're to be a part of equipping one another to be a part of God's work. We're to be a part of linking arms and loving this city with all of our might with sacrificial service. We're to be a part of building up a people to treasure Jesus above everything else by proclaiming that Christ loves them, cares for them. Friends, this is what we are to be about. This is our mission. And so we ask ourselves, what is distracting us from that mission? That mission of being God's people for the glory of God. We are meant to be an aroma of Christ among one another and among the perishing. What does it mean practically? You play sports? Yes, it's great to win. Go for it. It's a lot of fun. But when you play sports, the Christian's question is, how am I the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing? How do I help people see the beauty of Jesus in all that I'm doing? What about your work? Do you view every dollar you earn as not your own, but as God's gift to you that you steward for His name and His fame? Or are you tempted to believe, no, that's mine? When you work, do you do your work in such a way 
with such ethics and morality? Do you do it with such kindness and gentleness and respect and hard work that you are showing off the aroma of Jesus, that your life says, I have a different Savior, and it is not my job, and it is Christ? How are we working? How are we spending? How are we living with our free time? This is how we are on the mission of God in all that we do. How am I encouraging people to treasure Christ? Parents, this is your mission. How are you being distracted from showing your children Jesus? Married couples, how are you tempted to be distracted? I feel it in my marriage. It's my, it's my rights. I want my comfort. I want what I want when I want it. How many marriages and relationships are ripped apart because we have placed ourselves at the center of our relationships rather than how in the world do I leverage my life to help my spouse see the beauty of Jesus? Singles, how do you live your life thinking about your career, thinking about your roommates, thinking about your neighbors? How do I leverage my life, my skills, my ability, my time to show people that Jesus is my treasure? That he is my greatest satisfaction and reward. Friends, there are so many things that can distract us from these things. Some of you, some of you are not followers of Jesus. You've never trusted him with your life. And I just want you to know that there are distractions that come into your life that tempt you to not want to surrender your life to Christ. You might think, well, I'm not good enough. I'm just a train wreck of a life, so I've got to fix myself up before I can ever be a part of the people of God. And I just want you to hear this. You will never fix yourself up enough. That's the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is you can't fix yourself up, but here's the good news. Christ can be trusted to do what you can't do. Christ can be trusted to die the death that your sins justly deserve. You can trust him. He's paid the price. Now trust Him to wash you clean, make you new, to fill you with His Holy Spirit, that you might have hope in the midst of the darkest days. It's not that suffering won't come to your life, friends. It is that when you go through suffering and you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to be afraid because God is with you. So those of you who don't trust in Jesus, don't wait until you're better. There's a song. It's called Come You Sinners. It says, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. If you wait till you're better, you're never going to come. So come. Today is the day of salvation. Some of you feel like, well, maybe I just need to wait until I get my financial life more stable. And that's a distraction. So you just work and work and work. Maybe I need to get my house in order. There's all kinds of distractions. And I just want to lay it out here. Allow the book of Nehemiah to show you there will always be distractions in life. May we link arms to say we're going to be a part of surrendering our lives to Jesus to be a part of the mission of God. Now, the next lesson is a lesson of not only are we tempted to be distracted, but we are tempted when the stories of deceit come at us. So our opponents distract us and they deceive us. Look at verse 5 through 9. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. And that is why you are building up the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king, Nehemiah. And you have also set up the prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. 
And now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. What's just happened? The enemies have made up a story. Isn't this how it works? Stories can be made up. They don't have to be true. They just have to be said in winsome enough ways and posted on social media in order for people to believe them. Just get enough of the enemies to say the same story and then it becomes believable. This is what happens in Nehemiah. We'll just tell everybody that you're trying to raise up and to become king and it'll look like an insurrection and it'll look like that you're going against the king Artaxerxes and he'll come in and he'll wipe you out. So you better stop what you're doing and you better come and meet with me because if you don't, that rumor is going to fly away. I'm going to spread it to whoever I can. And man, the twisted story. What does Nehemiah do with this twisted story? Look at what he does in verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. Why in the world did they tell such stories? Verse 9 tells us. For they wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. It will not be completed. And here's what Nehemiah does. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. This is a beautiful lesson when slander and rumors abound about your life. The beautiful lesson is this. You say what is true, and then you fall on your face and pray. This is not true, but I will not stop the mission of God. I will not stop loving people. But I'll tell you, here's the temptation. Temptation is when people slander you, the temptation is an emotional one. It's an emotional one that you have to be perfect. Because if there's ever... <laughs> the temptation is an emotional one. It's an emotional one because you feel like you have to be perfect. Because if you ever have a time when you aren't perfect, then all of a sudden it will begin to play into those slanderous stories. And so it's a weight. It's a weight of perfection that you wear and carry around. It's emotional turmoil. I just wanted to tell you, Nehemiah said, this is true. I'm going to stay at the mission of God. And then he says, strengthen my hands. I want to lay this out for you. Some of you who are tempted, that maybe you feel attacked, maybe false stories are being spread about you, and you feel like the only hope is for you to be perfect. I want you to know this crisis of righteousness is this. You will never be good enough. You are a sinner. And it's okay to confess your sin because you lean on the righteousness of Jesus. You know what that means, those of you who are new to church? It means that you carry around dirty clothes. Dirty clothes that are shabby and that have holes in them. And by faith in Jesus, he comes because you can't clean yourself up. You can't sew them up enough. He comes to you and he says, I will be what you cannot be. And he gives you new clothes. It's his goodness, his righteousness, so that you can stand without shame and say, I'm a sinner, but I have an amazing Savior. He is my righteousness, and that's enough. Friends, whenever you experience these deceitful stories, we take cues from Nehemiah, and that is, oh God, strengthen these weak knees. We are a people of prayer. And look, I just want you to notice, 
It's not a long, drawn-out prayer. It's, oh God, strengthen me. Some of you might be tempted. i got to have fancy words. It has to be a long prayer. Hear the scriptures say, oh God, strengthen these weak knees. Strengthen my hands that I might be a follower of yours, that I might stay close to you. The next one is a story of intimidation. Intimidation. If you skip on down to verse 10, what we see here is intimidation by the followers or by the enemies of Nehemiah. It says, Now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, I totally botched that, but that's it, who was confined to his home, he said this, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, because they're coming to kill you. So now his life is physically in danger. These enemies are coming to kill him. And look at verse 11. But I, Nehemiah said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And verse 12 tells us, he says, and I understood and I saw that God had not sent him, but he was, had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Hired him. For this was his purpose he was hired for, that I should be afraid and act in such a way that I would sin. What was the sin? It would be to stop the mission of God and to hide. And so he goes on and he says, so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Before we get to the bad name, let's just make sure it's clear. The task of the opponent was to intimidate. If I can threaten you, you will stop the mission of God, and therefore, Nehemiah says, that would be sin. He would sin. He would hide away. How many of us are so tempted when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel attacked, is to just hide and to not choose the path of love? This was the goal. The goal was to intimidate that we might hide. And I just pray that God would use this story to awaken us to our temptation to hide from others. To not step out in love, but to shrink back. Because we feel intimidated spiritually, physically. We feel underqualified. We feel overwhelmed. Do not give in to the schemes of the devil where you pull back. Step forward in the mission of God to build the spiritual house. Step forward in love. And the last one, we saw it there in those verses. Verse 13, we see that their opponents were trying to assassinate his character. Verse 13, for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way of hiding and I would sin. And then they would have me. Aha! It would be character assassination. It would be, they would give me a bad name in order to taunt me. It's a smear campaign. That's the plan. I'm going to find a chink in the armor, and I'm going to expose the chink in the armor so I can smear their name. And if I do that, then I will have them. They will not be on the mission of God. And my economic empire will continue. At least that's the story in Nehemiah. But dear friends, what's so helpful here 
what's so helpful here is this whole idea of Jesus is our righteousness. It comes back at play that we can repent of our sins that we do have, even if we're not guilty of what they accuse us of. That we can be humble, we can confess where we are wrong, and we can trust the Lord. What do you do when the enemy wants a false narrative to characterize your life and they keep coming at you relentlessly? What do you do? Well, here's a quote from a poet, John Milton. The best apology, that is, the best defense against that type of smear campaign, the best apology against false accusers is silence and patient endurance and honest deeds set against dishonest words. Honest deeds set against dishonest words. Here's how Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, know you're loved by Jesus. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That means don't give in to the passions of the flesh. Fight against your sin. But here's what he says. Keep your conduct among the pagan world. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the last day, on the day of visitation. What is your response when the aim of the enemy is to assassinate your character? You live a life, not of verbal defense, but a life of love, which is its own defense. A life that is honorable, a life that is humble, a life that is repentant, a life that is fighting against sin, a life of love. And so friends, what do we do? What do we do when there are spiritual enemies coming at us? There are temptations that abound. Just know the devil wants you to stop the mission of love towards your spouse, towards your roommate, towards your kids, towards this church, towards this city, and to the nations. He wants to do anything he can do to sidetrack you. May we commit as a church that our primary aim, especially as we are looking to the future as a church, our primary aim is not bricks and mortar. Our primary aim is not land and property. Our primary aim is that we would be the people of God, loving the Son of God and the power of the Spirit of God on the mission of God's love for the glory of God. That is our mission. And we just have to have our antenna up that says, we will be attacked. It's not an if. It's a yes, it'll happen. But let's unify, friends. Let's let nothing come in the way of being an army of love for the glory of Jesus Christ. One last temptation that this passage shows us is that just because you reach a certain goal doesn't mean you are done following Jesus. Because here's what happened. This is like a massive quick summary of an entire chapter in the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah has finished the wall. And now he stands there and he looks and he realizes the work is not done. Now, I don't know if you follow college football, but there's a guy named Nick Saban. You know that I have to be desperate for an illustration when a Tennessee fan talks about an Alabama coach. But I just did it. I just did it, and here's why, because Tennessee can never win a national championship, and they, like, eat them for lunch. So, Nick Saban, after he had just won 
a national championship. They interviewed him. How are you doing? How do you feel about winning this national championship? And he says, we'll celebrate for a couple, couple of days, and then we're back at it again. And it's just like, you just, I mean, like, your whole season was was culminating in winning this national championship, and you're going to, like, celebrate for a few days and then go back at it? And he's like, yes, that's what we're going to do. Now, I think in that case, it could be workaholism or whatever, but here's what the point is. The point is this. What is our goal? When you might have been watching some uh, of these conference basketball tournaments, the ACC tournament or the SEC tournament, Whoever wins those tournaments, when you ask them, are you excited about winning that tournament? Yes, it is, but what's the goal? The goal is not just to win their conference tournament. The goal is to win the big dance, right, the one that's coming. And here with Nehemiah, the goal was not just to build the wall. The goal was to build a people. The goal was to take these people of Israel that were scattered all over the territory and to bring them back to be the people of God that they might shine as a light to the nations. And so, I want to just read what happened when the wall was finished. It's in chapter 6, and it says this in verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day. It took 52 days to do it. And when all our enemies heard that it was finished, all the nations around us were afraid. And they fell greatly in their own esteem. They saw how small they were. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Friends, could we just make a commitment that as a church, that's our prayer? That God would bless us in such a way that it is so crystal clear that He has done it and we have not. There would be no praise to us as people. There would be all glory to Him as God. Can we just unite to pray that He would increase, we would decrease, and we would not allow the distractions, the deceit, the intimidation, the character assassination, anything else to pull us off the mission of God together. And we would remember, like Nehemiah, we have small goals that we're going to walk towards, but our greatest goal is to build up the people of God into a spiritual house that treasure Jesus Christ with all their life so that this city, this community, and to the ends of the earth, my love Jesus with all their hearts. Friends, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, I just ask, I ask that we would learn from this story. We would learn from this story that we must repent where we are being distractions to the mission of God. We must repent when we are participating in sins that pull us away from loving our neighbor as ourselves. Father, we come in desperate need of you. And right now I just ask, I ask that there would be a humble spirit that sweeps over us as a people. A spirit that can be confident and bold like Nehemiah was. I will not stop the work of God. But it was a humble spirit. Oh God, strengthen these hands. So Father, I ask that we would be a people characterized by boldness and by love. We would be a people characterized by sacrificial servanthood and prayer. 
and that we would never believe the lie that our lives are all alone. But we are part of a family. We're part of the church. Father, I just pray that we would be the church. That people would know that we are your followers by how we love one another. People would know that we are your followers by how we love this city and beyond. And Father, I pray there are some here who have never surrendered their lives to Jesus. They might have gone to church maybe much of their life, but they have only done religion. They've only come leaning on their own works, leaning on their own goodness, or comparing themselves to a neighbor saying, I'm better than them. But Father, true salvation we know comes when we say, we compare to you our sinners. We fall away short, and we need you in this moment to wash us clean and make us new. Some people are carrying around shame as a characteristic of their life, and their life is characterized by hiding. Father, I pray that they would hide no more, that they would come out because they would believe the good news that there is acceptance to be found in Christ. You died. You sent your son to die in our place, and you rejected your son so that we could, we would never be rejected by you. Father, I pray for faith to rise up in the heart, and today, for the first time, someone would confess their sins, confess Jesus as the only hope for their sins, and surrender their lives wholly to Christ. They would become a part of your church. So, Father, in these few moments of stillness, I just ask, I ask that there would be a resolve humility, prayerfulness, that we as the church would not be a part of any distracting effort of the evil one, but we would be still with you, we would be linked arms on your mission of life. As God is working in your life, and I trust he is, because his word says that he will. Spend a moment in prayer asking him to work in your heart and then we'll end it in a song.